so we're talking this uh, morning about equip, that we are a church where we are growing in our calling and in our service. As we have been walking through the five E's that guide our ministry uh, for over the last number of weeks, and there's, there's still one more to go next week. Uh, but uh, this morning I want to talk about what does it mean for us to be equipped as Christ followers? What does that look like? What are the implications for that? So a number of years ago, uh, I was in a job interview, and uh, the person interviewing me said, I'm going to give you, in rapid-fire succession, a bunch of categories, and I want you to rate yourself between 1 and 10. 1 bad, 10 good, when, when uh, these words come out. And no explanation, I'm just going to say a word, and you're going to give me a number. Okay? So here we go. Husband, father, son, family member, church member, supervisor, employee, uh, manager, pastor, preacher, and it kind of went on and on and on. And then I'm going, you know, one, ten, twelve, three, like, right? You just kind of put stuff, you kind of go, and then later on you're thinking, okay, how accurate was that? You know, how, what's my self-awareness level at? Trying to figure out that self-rating. It's an interesting exercise to do, especially when you can't explain anything. You just have to pick a number, no context. Well, I'm going to give you a chance to rate yourself this morning. Bet you didn't think that was going to happen when you came to church. Four categories. Explorer, hiker, climber, guide. Now, some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? I don't do anything outdoorsy. Never have, never will. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is about a year ago, a little over a year ago, we rolled out the Willingdon uh, Discipleship Pathway. There's these little booklets all over the lobby you can pick up that explain it in full detail. And we kind of looked at the Bible and said, okay, what are kind of the four categories that we can read in the Bible about the steps that people go through in their spiritual journey? And then we kind of took West Coast language, uh, this outdoor language, to describe them. So let me read for you what they are. An explorer. An explorer would say, I'm curious. Wondering, what is Christianity about? I'm wondering who Jesus is and why people worship him. I'm checking out Christianity and not sure if I want to commit uh, to following Jesus. I have questions about faith and I need answers. I'm wondering how people who claim to follow Jesus behave. So if you're here this morning and you would say, that's where I'm at. I'm just sticking my toe in the water. I'm just trying to figure it out. And I'm watching all you guys to see what Christianity is about. Welcome, you're an explorer in our language. Hiker, I've made a decision to follow Jesus, but don't know what that all involves. So I'm a brand new Christ follower. I'm learning the basics of what I need to know to follow Jesus. I'm looking to understand foundational practices like how to read my Bible, how to pray, and how grace transforms my life. I'm joining a group that is growing in faith together. Climber. I'm conquering challenges in my faith as I trust God in life and ministry. I'm enjoying expressing my faith by serving God through the gifts he's given me. I'm prioritizing my time with God and increasingly following his leading in all areas of my life. I see life as a journey with people who intentionally help each other grow in faith and ministry. So these are people who are now moving down the road and expressing their gifts, living in in a community, expressing it through community. A guide. I follow Jesus and train people to be disciples who make disciples. I intentionally 
I'm intentionally guiding others to give away what Jesus has given them. To give away what Jesus has given them. I guide people to move from being explorers to hikers to climbers to guides. I seek to live a life surrendered to Christ and obedience to the Spirit's leading to bring glory to God and benefit to people. So as we think about journeying down a discipleship growth pathway, these are the categories we use to describe or to help you assess and read those things and go, where would I place myself? Where would I look at these four journey points and go, well, I'm mostly here or I'm mostly there. And in those booklets, we've given opportunities or suggestions to say, well, if you're here, here's ways to grow. Here's ways to be equipped. Here's ways to connect. So Willingdon exists to know Jesus personally and to carry on his ministry. So knowing Jesus personally is what the explorer is trying to figure out. What does that mean? Carrying on his ministry is the next three categories as, as they increasingly walk with God, grow in faith, and live out what it means to be a disciple. So what is a disciple? What's the definition of disciple? It's very simple. A disciple is someone who has met Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is leading others to Jesus. So the definition of disciple is very simple. Not always easy to do, but I think it's very simple to understand. If I call myself a disciple or think of myself in that way, I've met Jesus, I'm following Jesus, and I'm pointing other people to Jesus. That's what I do. And that is the journey we want to take people on. So in the last few weeks, we've been walking through the beginnings of the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is that book that gives the the story of how the initial church is formed and how people move from being explorers to to hikers, to climbers, to guys. Like that's really the story of the book of Acts as the Spirit pours out on the first 120 believers who were waiting for the Spirit to come as Jesus had told them to. And then they preach through Peter that first message and the church is formed and we talked about what that church looked like uh, last week. And then there's persecution that happens a few chapters later and now the believers are sent all over the Roman Empire as they flee persecution in Jerusalem and churches now pop up all over the place. And one of the key places uh, in that story is in the city of Ephesus. And the city of Ephesus shows up in the Bible many times because many things happen there. And if you went to Ephesus today, uh, the, the old city is a few miles away from the current city, which is Izmir which is a port city in southwest Turkey. And, uh, and, and back then, the ports moved over because it silted in and closed in the historic port. But it was always a center of commerce. So the whole world would come there to trade, which means all the world religions came there, which means also that's when Christianity got rooted there through the Apostle Paul. It went from there all over the world. And so we read about the things that happened there and where Paul... Uh, handled or met with explorers and climbers and hikers and guides. So in Acts chapters 18 to 20, uh, I'll just describe for you some of the things that happened there. So Paul in Acts chapter uh, 19, he meets the seven sons of Sceva. So in our language, I would put those in the explorer category. They were not Christ followers, but they were, they were these seven guys, these seven brothers who had seen spiritual power exhibited through uh, demons being cast out of people. And so you can read in the text where it says, where they tried that. They said, uh, you know, uh, they went there, sorry. They, they said that according to Jesus, who the apostle Paul preaches, 
So in the power and authority of Jesus, who Apostle Paul preaches, we command you to leave this man. And the demon said, well, I know who Jesus is. I know who Paul is. I don't know who you are. And you're third-hand authority, so you have none. And so through the sons of Sceva, these guys get, or through the the demon-possessed man, these seven brothers get beat up. And so Paul deals with these folks, and he, and he has to take them and actually educate them. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And how do you work in that authority? Then there's hikers that he works with, which I would call the 12 disciples of John the Baptist, who he meets there in Acts chapter 19. And those understood the baptism of repentance of John, that John baptized with, but they had never been baptized in the Spirit. So these were God-fearing, God-following people, people who had who would have heard John say, you got to follow this guy, not me, as we read about in the Gospels. But they had never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Paul now introduces them to the Holy Spirit. Then we have climbers there. People who are following Christ in Acts uh, chapter 19, verses 18 to 20. So they had converted to Christ, but they had been involved in the magical arts, in sorcery, and all the spiritual things around that. And we just read in that brief encounter where these people said, I want to declare my allegiance to following Jesus. So they burned all their magical books, all the texts that they used for that practice. They burned those. They said, we want to get them out of our lives. And they took that step. And then we read about Paul being a guide, training another guide, actually, in Timothy. So we read about it in 1 Timothy, but we know that Timothy was stationed in Ephesus because we're told that. So Paul is training Timothy as a guide to be a guide, to be a pastor, to show these uh, the people that he was caring for how they should live, to teach them well, how to lead well, and do all those things is what Paul built into them. And then we also know that uh, numerous of Paul's letters originated in Ephesus, 1 Corinthians and Philippians and Galatians and Philemon and so on. All of these letters teaching people how to go from being an explorer to being a hiker, to a climber, to a guide, because you see that trajectory in Scripture time and time again. And then we move to the book of Ephesians. If you're using a pew Bible, I think it's page 976. Uh, You can look it up there or turn uh, to Ephesians chapter 2 is where we will start. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we now have Paul writing back to the church in Ephesus, uh, probably in the early 60s uh, after Jesus died around 62 AD, roughly. And in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10 of the book of Ephesians, we have this incredibly concise description of the wonder and beauty of the work of Christ. Where Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he's saying to his audience, to his readers, and to us, you are saved by grace. There is nothing you have done, nothing you are doing, nothing you will do, nothing you could do that can earn your salvation, your forgiveness from from Christ. None of those things matter. It is an act of faith. What you simply did was respond to God's initiating work by saying, I believe. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that in him I have new life. I believe that I needed to repent and take a new direction in my life to follow him. I believe that he's conquered death 
And because of him, I will live for all of eternity with him. All Jesus' initiating work. And then he says this wonderful thing. The simple phrase, for we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship. Think about that. You and I are God's workmanship. Now, you may not feel good about yourself. You may have people say bad things about you at points in your life. God looks at you and says, you are my workmanship. And I guarantee you this, friends. God does not make junk. Is there anything in Scripture where you go, oh, where God would say, oh, that was a bad day. That third day of creation, not so good. Right? God looks at creation and said, this is good. And when God says good, that's like us, us saying awesome 20 times over as we tend to. And then he looks at humanity. When humanity is created, he says, this is very good. You are God's workmanship. That is who you are. And then he continues on. He says, and you are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you are God's workmanship. God created you to do good works. And this gets even more personal when he says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you are God's workmanship. God created you for a relationship with him. When you respond to his initiating work through Jesus Christ, he says, there are things that I now have for you to do that I planned for you to do from before the time you were born. Can it get any more personal and intimate than that? It's not just that God has a plan for this world and he says, well, if you can help out, you know, why don't you see where you can pitch in? He says, no, no, you are my workmanship. You are created to do good works that I prepared for you beforehand. Think about that, friends. Think about how personal that is. Think about how intimate that is. How are these works going to be accomplished? He tells us in Ephesians 4, verses 7 and 8, when he says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So enough grace for all of us, regardless of our story. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And depending on the, the version you're reading, it'll say men and women or gifts to people. So he is saying that he sets the captives free because Jesus did that through his death and resurrection. And then these things that he's planned for us to do because we are his workmanship, he gave us the gifts now to do the things that he's planned for us to do. That was God's intent. So if you are a Christ follower, you are gifted by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. If you think, well, when God gave out spiritual gifts, he skipped me. Like either I wasn't in the room that day or I wasn't home, I missed something. And I am not gifted. So when I come to church, when I'm with God's people, I have nothing to give. You know, I show up once in a while, I can throw something in the offering plate, but I have no gift to give. Friends, I cannot say this strongly enough. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Why do I say it so strongly? Because if we believe that, we are saying, God, I am not your workmanship. God, I am not created in your image, actually. God, your salvation, your saving work through Jesus isn't enough to cover me. It doesn't actually bring me fully into your family. So the things you created beforehand for me to do, somehow I cannot participate in those. It is exactly what the devil wants you to believe. That's why I say it's from the pit of hell. Why? Because he wants you on the sidelines. He wants you believing lies about your Father in heaven. He wants you believing lies about the one who says, you are my workmanship, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, like his word says. 
So to believe anything less is to, be a lie, is to believe a lie from Satan. That's what it is. It's giving Satan that kind of influence and authority in your life. According to God's word. See, Jesus has given every Christ follower spiritual gifts through the Holy Spirit. Jesus has given every Christ follower spiritual gifts through the Holy Spirit. So let me explain sort of how this works. Here's a a couple thousand year run through history very quickly. So if you go back before the time of Christ and the people of Israel, anytime they wanted to do anything in worship, they had to go to a priest. Right? The priest was the intermediary between them and God and God and them. You want to do a worship sacrifice, you want prayer, you want anything, you, gotta go, you have to go through a priest. And then this amazing thing happens at Pentecost, that day when the church starts and the Holy Spirit gets poured out. And the Spirit is poured out not just on the 12 apostles, but poured out on all the disciples that are there, we're told. And we know there were 120 in that room and it says there's tongues of fire on everyone. So now the ministry of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit are now being imparted to all the people of Christ. And now ministry happens through all of them. And now we see that happening in the book of Acts over and over again. And when they're scattered because of persecution in Acts chapter 8, we see this now happen throughout the Roman Empire where they are starting churches and where the ministry continues. This works great for 300 years. Then Constantine comes along. Christianity becomes an official religion of of the Roman Empire. And this thing starts happening, which is the professionalism or professionalization of the clergy. So professionally, I get called. If the government says, you know, what's your profession? I have to check off clergy. That's what my profession is. So this professionalization happened, and all these people who were part of the game, who were, who were God's workmanship, gifted by the Spirit, serving that way throughout the body of Christ, increasingly they're being told, let the professionals take care of it. And so now the clergy, or like a priestly class, is now taking over ministry. And those who were in the game are now back on the sidelines. And now they are sitting there, marginalized. And I think this actually was a great evil work of the evil one because how do you marginalize the church? Well, you get the body of Christ to quit believing they are called by God, gifted by God, commissioned by God to do the work of God and just leave it to the professionals. That's how you marginalize the church. Then what happens? How does that carry forward? 1500s, the Reformation. So these people who are formerly priests reform all this doctrine and they reform church structures somewhat. Somewhat. Not fully. So while the Bible talks about this priesthood of all believers that was written in the, in the scriptures, written in the first 300 years, like right, that time when the scriptures were all formed, which means all the believers have the gifts and are using them and serving, that gets marginalized. It's brought back a little bit in the 1500s, but not fully. So here's how it plays out often today, and I've experienced this many times. Christians get moved to different cities for whatever reason. They get there and they go, we've got to find a church. So what do they do? They go church shopping. And I've had people walk in the door and tell me, I'm church shopping. Well, if you're shopping for something, that means you're a consumer. Right? If that's what consumers do. They shop. And then they come to church and say, well, what does this church have that I need or I want? Pick whatever program or style or whatever it is. And as a pastor, this happens to us all the time. Basically convince me, tell me what you have, why we should come to your church. And I was having one of those meetings one day, 
and I think the Spirit of God just kind of spoke into my mind because I wouldn't come up with this on my own. So as we're having this conversation with this individual, uh, this line came into my head. I said, tell you what, if God wants you here, I do too, and if he doesn't, I don't either. And I got exactly that same response, kind of this nervous laughter, like, is that okay? But here's the point. If we are Christ followers, we are all to be part of the body of Christ somewhere. Part of a church somewhere. That's normal Christian living. So I believe that, and I think scriptures bear this out, but I firmly believe this, that whatever body of Christ he sends us to, that body has something, needs something that we have, and we need something that that body has. So the question isn't actually what programs do you have or what events or or whatever those things are. The question is, has God called you to this body? So I said to the, to the person, I've said it numerous times over the years, tell you what, you pray and ask God if he's leading you here. And if he is, then let's talk about what that reciprocal relationship is. Because then I have to take seriously the fact that we have something that you need, and you have something that we need. Because that's how the body of Christ works. Right? This beautiful, symbiotic relationship is what Jesus intended. And when that happens, when we serve in that way, I believe we honor who Jesus is and how he served. Right? What did he do? He wraps a towel around him and, gets, and uh, pulls out a basin of water and he washes the disciples' feet before they have the Lord's Supper and then he says, go do the same. Have this servant leadership kind of heart. I think if the Apostle Paul walked in here today, said, God's called me here. What do you want me to do? Tell me and I'll do it. Because he had the same servant heart as Jesus had. That's why it's so important as a church for us to be equipping people to understand their gifts and use their gifts for their benefit, the benefit of the body of Christ and for the glory of God. See, Jesus gave Christ's followers specific gifts to equip the church and to do God's work in the world. Jesus gave Christ's followers specific gifts to equip the church and do God's work in the world. And Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12 tell us what those are. It says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. He said, these five gifts, and there are many other spiritual gifts, and in the coming weeks we will be having messages on the broader spiritual gifts. But he said, these five gifts specifically were given to equip the saints. Now, some of these gifts have been abused, like uh, gifts can be, any gift can be. But that is not a reason to push them away. It's actually a reason to discern how they should be used. Actually, here's a simple test for any gift. If a person says, I have the gift of so-and-so, the way to understand or to your grid to discern that gifting is, is the fruit of the Spirit that that gift, that that gift exhibits when that gift is being used. Because you can have the gift of the Spirit without the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit will show you if that gift is there to honor the person or to honor God. Very simple test. So what's an apostle? An apostle extends the gospel. The word apostle means sent one or messenger. Often apostles carry this strong weight or sense of the kingdom of God and taking that forward, breaking new ground, starting new churches, new initiatives to take that, the church where they are, further to extend the kingdom of God or to begin new kingdom works. 
in places that God has them, whether it's in a neighborhood or whether it's starting new churches, those kinds of things. That's what the gift of apostleship does. It breaks down barriers and brings the church and the gospel into new contexts. That's the gift of apostleship. Modern-day apostles do not serve with the authority of, of the first apostles who were the foundation of the church, but they build on that foundation to extend the church. I was thinking of a good example of an apostle, and uh, we have a, an acquaintance of mine coming here to teach at our base camp conference. His name is Jeff Vanderstelt. He's from uh, the Seattle era, area. And Jeff is one of those guys. He carries that apostolic gifting. He is starting new churches, starting new ministries, working with others, raising up other leaders, equipping other leaders to extend the kingdom of God. And he's going to come and train us and teach us on October 18 and 19, which, by the way, you can still sign up for out in the lobby. Uh, but Jeff carries that, right? That's who he is. And, uh, and he does a great job of that. Another gift that's given is the prophets. Prophets know, know God's will. They are particularly tuned into the word of God and the truth of God. And it's this beautiful marriage in that gift of the timeless truth of God and the timely application of that truth. It's that ability to speak into the status quo because they are always more concerned about the word of God and the truth of God than they are with what people think about them. That's why sometimes they can be a little obnoxious. Not much filter. They just go, this is true, you need to hear it, and you need to hear it now. That's what prophets do. That's what they bring. They challenge the status quo. They challenge the culture of the day. And they go, wait a minute, folks, this doesn't line up with Scripture. And you need to hear it today. And they speak it into specific situations. The prophets in my life have have profoundly guided how God works in my life. I'll be struggling with something and they'll call me up and say, you know, I was praying for you and just felt the Lord said I should pass this on to you. And I'm like, who did you talk to? I said, no one. How did you know X? I didn't. It's just the Lord pre- impressed me with this and I just wanted to pass it on to you. The timeless word of God, the timeless truth of God brought in timely ways. Now often we get freaked out by the word prophet and we have this picture of Elijah or, or you know, Moses, that kind of prophet coming into our world. And I've had that experience actually. So was in church one day and this guy comes in and he looked like Elijah, like I imagine Elijah looking. Like he had long white hair, he's probably 70 years old, big long beard. I mean if he would have had a camel hair coat and a staff it would have been for sure. Like he, he was only missing that. And he comes in and he says to me, uh, I'm a prophet. I go, great. And, and so when I have a word I stand up and I give it to the church. I go, well that's not how we work here. And he says, well, if it's from the Lord, then I should be able to do that. And I think, again, this is one of these moments when I think the Lord gave me an aha moment. I said to him, do you want to be an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament prophet? He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, it's simple. Old Testament, you're either 100% right or we should stone you to death. That's what the Old Testament tells us. New Testament, it says you give your word to leadership. They discern it. They pray about it. And if it should be passed on to whoever, they will do that. I go, that's what the New Testament tells us. That's what Corinthians and and, uh, Thessalonians tells us. Pursue the gifts of of prophecy and discern them. Don't despise them, discern them. So how would you like us to treat you? If it's Old Testament prophet, I might have legal issues, but I'm on good biblical ground. He was never a problem. I guess he took me seriously. But often we think of this Old Testament, thus saith the Lord thing. That's not how the gift of prophecy works. It is God speaking the timeless truth in timely ways that gets passed on to people for their encouragement and their edification and for their teaching. 
It's a wonderful and beautiful gift. Evangelists. Evangelists recruit, right? That's what evangelists do. They're infectious communicators of the gospel. And, uh, and they just have this clear picture of the redemptive work of Christ. And they have this gift of just cutting to that conversation very quickly. We have a bunch of great evangelists uh, here at Willingdon. I think of, of uh, Ted and Walton Carroll and Jesse and Lynn and Eddie and Dan. And there's many, many more. People who you run into them, they're always telling you who they led to Christ most recently. Because right? that just oozes out of them. Or shepherds who nurture and protect. They're caregivers for the community. They focused on, on that spiritual protection, on walking with people, on bringing that care. When you hang out with them, you just feel good about yourself. Whatever was bad isn't so bad when you're with them. I think of my friend Phil here. I think of uh, Caroline, who's one of our leaders in Freedom Session, or I think actually of all our Freedom Session leaders. They just have that. Many of our life group leaders are gifted with that shepherding gift. And then teachers who understand and explain things, communicators of God's truth and wisdom, helping others remain biblically grounded. They're often the people who you say, I don't understand this scripture. I don't understand this biblical concept. And they go, oh, and they talk to you for five minutes. You go, oh, I get it now. Right? They can make the complicated simple. Many of our life group leaders, discovery leaders, uh, uh, alpha leaders often have that gift. WSB teachers and others that we have here. The end result of these gifts working together, I think, is the fulfillment, the increasing fulfillment of the prayer Jesus told us to pray when he said, may your kingdom come and your will done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what happens when God's people work in this way. Jesus gifted some as well to use their gifts and others to multiply their gifts. He gifted some to use their gifts and others to multiply their gifts. What's the difference? Well, you can be a pastor, teacher, prophet, etc. And your gifting actually is the exercising of that gift. That's what you're good at. That's what you're passionate about. That's how God has called you and gifted you and commissioned you. And that's great. There's another category which I will call the office of those gifts. The office multiplies that gift. So the office of teacher raises up teachers. The office of evangelist raises up evangelists. That's what they do. They multiply themselves. And we see that happening throughout history. Uh, very quick example, George Whitfield and John Wesley. George Whit- both great preachers, evangelists, kind of this apostolic piece to them. But the difference was that Whit- Whitfield went about preaching and then he left and he preached another place and another place and another place. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands came to Christ. Wesley was doing that and then he looked at that and then he said, you know what? I need to raise up others like myself So we started a method. The method actually was simply what we would basically call small groups. A way of drawing people together and teaching the things that they needed to teach, raising up leaders and seeing that multiplied. That method gave us the Methodists, which is the denomination that we hear about today. That work and the impact of Wesley's work continues to this day. Whitfield's work was great, but it ended with him. That's the difference between the gift and the office. Both incredibly important, but they serve a different purpose. And God has given us both of those. And so we need to honor those. What was the purpose? Jesus gave gifts to Christ followers to build up the body of Christ. Verse 12b, the simple statement there. Equip the saints, why? For building up the body of Christ. And then he tells us what the point was. So the word equip is a medical term. 
It's the idea of setting a bone so it can work properly. So when you are equipping the body, you are setting the bones of the body so that when they heal, when they are whole, the whole body functions properly. He's saying equip the body of Christ with these five gifts specifically so that, why? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children. The end results of the equipping, of the building up of the body, unity, faith and knowledge of the Son of God, teaching, mature manhood, to measure the stature, the fullness of Christ, so we may no longer be children. See, the maturity piece is what he wants for us. So Jesus equips Christ's followers for the purpose of building maturity. And in verse 14, he tells us what it means to no longer be children. What are, what are children like spiritually? In verse 14, he tells us, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Tossed to and fro by the waves. Difficulty. Life's difficulty. So depending where you live in this world, some governments in this world tell you, you cannot meet as a church. Or you can meet as a church, but you have to actually believe what we tell you to believe. Or you have other governments in this world tell you, you can do whatever you want, but the, the public pressure, the media pressure says, you better think like we do. Right? Canada is increasingly becoming that way. You have freedom of religion, but you better think like, like the government tells you to think, like the media tells you to think. And he says, so when you're tossed to and fro, you're mature, you can handle it when those things come. He says, you're not carried about by every wind of doctrine. So every new thing that someone says, hey, we found the real Jesus. We found Mary this. We found Jesus that. Like all these winds of doctrine that come through, you can say, no, I can actually discern truth. Why? Because you're mature. Because the teachers are building into you. And then he says, by human cunning. And the idea behind human cunning actually is, uh, literally means wicked dice playing or intentionally fraudulent behavior. You can try when you can see when someone's trying to lie to you. You can figure that out about theological things, about spiritual things. And the idea between craftiness by craftiness and deceitful schemes is actually the schemes of the devil. That's what that phrase refers to. So when you're mature, you don't get tossed around by difficulties. And you have people walking with you in them, the shepherds, the teachers. When you're mature, you can discern truth. When you're mature, you can handle conflict because you can see what's really going on. When you're mature, you can discern good teaching. When you're mature, all these things that the scriptures say are what gets built up. Now, I want you also to remember the text where this church, where this was written, friends. This was written to the church in the Roman Empire where they they were being called towards emperor worship. And if you were not worshiping the emperor, it was actually an act of treason to worship anyone other than the emperor. So to say, I worship Jesus, was an act of treason in the Roman Empire. That's their context. If you think it doesn't apply to our context, their context was more challenging. And so when when maturity happens, then we are not easily shaken in our faith. And we walk together as the body of Christ. We understand that we are God's workmanship, that he has gifted every one of us. Some of us to do things directly, some of us to raise up others in doing them. But that is what he has called us to do. 
See, Jesus gave every Christ follower gifts to build up the body of Christ. Jesus gave every Christ follower gifts to build up the body of Christ. And that's what we are to do. Which means, as pastors, our job, our primary job, is actually to equip you for the things God has for you. If we do your ministry for you, we harm you, and we harm the body of Christ. It is much more important that we pray, or sorry, that we teach you to pray, than it is that we pray for you. It is much more important that we teach you how to look at the Word of God and read the Word of God and learn from the Word of God than it is to be the source of teaching for you all the time. Now, we all have gifts that we exercise. That's why I'm standing up here today. But it is much more important that we equip you. And that's why we work at all these different equipping things across our church. So if you walk out the doors to your right, there's a kiosk there with equipping opportunities. So discovery classes or alpha classes or we have a spiritual gifts class that's four weeks long starting at WSB. Next Wednesday night is the first night you can still sign up for. Coming to base camp to understand what it means to be kingdom people in your community and understanding how to live that in very practical ways. See, the equipping is so that you can experience what God has gifted you for, called you to, destined for you to do before you were born. So that you live in the fullness that God has for you, increasing your maturity and your unity so that you walk as discerning followers of Christ and the whole church is lifted up because we are being God's people. That's what he intends for us, friends. That's what he intends for us. That's why equipping is so important. It's not a program for more serving. It's a, ma- it's a biblical mandate that we need to obey. But I'll tell you, the place I've learned the most about what my gifts are is when I started serving. And I had friends say, yeah, that was good. You're, I think you're gifted in that. And I do something else, go, that was awful. I'm not going to try that again. So I learned, never have me lead worship, ever. Really bad idea. Right? Because you, you walk in gifts and you test them out. That's what God intends for us. And that's what our dream is for you, to understand you are Christ's workmanship, gifted by God, to use your gifts in service for his glory, the things he planned for you to do that the whole body benefits from and you benefit from as everyone else serves with their gifts and they intersect with each other. It's the glory of God's plan in the body of Christ. Amen. Let's pray and then we're going to move into communion. Father, I thank you for your, your amazing plan. I thank you for how you've designed us and And on one hand, I would think, boy, this is a questionable enterprise to commit your kingdom work to us. And yet that's your plan, to save us, to fill us with your spirit, to gift us, to put equippers among us so that we learn what we're good at and we give it to you and we serve the body of Christ. And as we do that, the body of Christ is honored. People are served. We grow in faith in you as you speak to us and through us. The kingdom goes forward. Lives are transformed. And this world increasingly becomes the sign and wonder of the kingdom that you call us to be. I thank you for that, Father. And I pray that we would take the steps that we need to take as we look at where are we as an explorer, a hiker, a climber, or a guide. And what would you have us do to take the next step in our equipping journey? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.